ITPS podcast respectfully acknowledges that the Institute for Thomas Paine Studies, part of Iona College in New Rochelle, New York, was built on the traditional land of the past, present, and future generations of Muncie Lenape in the greater Lenape Hoking territory. I'm John Winters. Welcome to the ITPS Podcast. On the last season of the podcast, my colleague here at the Institute for Thomas Paine Studies, Lindsay Shravinsky, introduced us to the wide world of public history. She spoke with public history practitioners and scholars about their work in every medium from, well, podcasts to museums and historic homes. So if you haven't had a chance to listen to those episodes, you really need to. They show the incredible range, the dynamism, the scholarly potential of doing public history in our digital age. It also raised the question about who exactly is our audience? What goal should the public history practitioner have, and how do you achieve that goal? Last season was also all about why public history is important. The projects themselves may take many shapes, sure, but all of them are designed to bring various histories, communities, and knowledges to the broader public. In other words, public history brings people together. So for season two, I continue that work, but with a sharper focus on a topic we don't often talk about, indigenous public history. My guests include a wide range of leading indigenous scholars, cultural leaders, and museum professionals, as well as non-indigenous public historians. They are all doing the important work of elevating and complicating indigenous public history. And we talk about a variety of topics like the ways that they formed meaningful and positive relationships with indigenous communities and privileged their perspectives, the triumphs and challenges they faced along the way, the responsibilities as public historians to listen, collaborate, and decolonize. And they offer insight into their experiences doing the vital work of dismantling the barriers that have long existed between public historians, scholars, and indigenous nations. Without further ado, let's get into it. My guest today is Ora Merrick Martinez. Ora is Assistant Professor of Anthropology, Director of the Office of Native American Initiatives, and Executive Director of the Native American Cultural Center at Northern Arizona University. She also has a long history of working for the Navajo Nation in various historic preservation and archaeology departments. Ora, thank you so much for joining me today. Hi, John. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited for our conversation today. So if you wouldn't mind, uh, please just tell us a little bit more about yourself. Yeah, definitely. I would like to begin with a land acknowledgement. And um, I am currently located on in Flagstaff, Arizona, on lands that are traditional to at least 14 different tribal nations. And so I'd just like to honor their connections, as well as their ancestors, their present communities, as well as their future generations. And so um, just wanted to begin with that. But also in, in my culture, in, in Navajo culture, or as we call ourselves, the Diné culture, the, the human beings, we always begin with an introduction of who we are and where we come from. And so I'd like to begin with my own introduction um, to honor my own ancestors. And so I am going to be speaking in Diné language or Navajo language. And so, Dr. Oramaric Martinez, Yanisha. Thank you 
I just introduced myself. Um, I am a member of the Navajo Nation, but it also I come from the Mountain Cove clan. Uh, my father was Nispers from northern Idaho. My maternal grandfather was Hopi from Old Aribe, um, and he was Sun Clan. My paternal grandfather was actually Bohemian and Italian, which is where my uh, last name Merritt comes from. Because of that, I am a Navajo woman. Uh, originally, I am from Lapway, Idaho, in a Nespers reservation, but I live here in Flagstaff with my family now. And so really, that is just sort of me opening myself and, and my, my history in an attempt to create relationality um, and really establish that um, sort of family relationship with people. Um, and especially because of what I'm going to be speaking about today is very personal to me that I feel like I should share who I am with you as I am seen and, and known in my own community. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much for sharing that. And so let's, let's get right into that, that uh, your long, fascinating career. I mean, you've done a, a number of different projects and served in a number of different really academic, but also public facing roles uh, with, with the Diné Nation. So you've served as a supervisory archaeologist and a program manager of the archaeology department and the list goes on and on. Can you just give me a better sense of how you started out on this, on this path to archaeology and, and how you ended up where you are today? Yeah, definitely. I didn't know that what I wanted to be was an archaeologist, but I knew that I wanted to do that kind of work when I was 10 years old. Mm. And so um, my father, actually, he was a very culturally embedded person, and he made it his mission to educate my siblings and I about our Nespers culture and our history um, but also our protocols. Are, so we received a, a cultural education as well. And so, you know, one of the one of the things that my dad would do for us is he would take us to archaeological sites and, and we'd visit these places and he would relate to us these stories that his grandmother, um, his mother and his grandmother told him about how our people, the Nimipu people, Nespers people lived and, and moved and interacted in these areas and so there was one particular place where we'd go every summer. It was called Buffalo Eddy. Um, and it's still there. It's a, it's actually a swimming site, but it's also a petroglyph site. One summer, my dad took us there to tell us the stories and, and tell, talk to us about our family history, our band history. And we went to this area, um, where the petroglyphs were and, I just remember my dad was leading us. I was right next to him. And then I had some of my sisters and my other cousins who were with us. And so we're sort of shimmying along this cliff edge, which is what you had to do to get to this petroglyph area. And so my dad stopped and all of us kind of bumped into each other. And I remember just being a little like, what's wrong? You know, dad, what's, what's, what's the matter? And so he turned and looked at me and he was crying. And that was the first time I had ever seen my dad cry. Mm -hmm. And so that, you know, immediately I was panicked and, and I was asking him all of these questions. And so he finally took a breath and moved aside and we all were able to come into this space. And I'll never forget, there was this beautiful panel of petroglyphs and someone had come in and chainsawed and chipped out the middle of the panel 
and there were pieces of the panel that were left and, and there were pieces that had fallen into the river, but it was destroyed essentially. And I remember crying and feeling so disappointed and that turning into anger. And I remember asking my dad, dad, why would, why would somebody do that? Why would they take these from us? And so my dad, I'll never forget this answer. And so it took him a while, but he looked at me square in the eye and told me that it was either in somebody's backyard or it was in a museum. And that I just, I could not understand that. And I had a million other questions, but I saw how my dad was impacted. And I realized that this was something that was hurting not only my family, but our entire community. And so I made it my, I made a promise to myself at that point that I would do whatever it took to protect our, our ancestors, to protect our culture and to protect these places that our ancestors lived. And so little did I know that that would lead me to a career in archaeology but actually, when I when I first started out in university, the education that I received and, and how I was taught about indigenous peoples, I did not want to be an archaeologist at all. It was something that I felt was exclusionary of indigenous perspectives and, and me being an indigenous woman, that that was not the place for me. And so I... I move forward in a career as a cultural anthropologist and as a historian. And so those were areas that were, to me, that were welcoming and open to Indigenous perspectives. And so I went through my education, my undergrad um, and my grad education as a cultural anthropologist. But it wasn't until I went into my doctoral program at the University of California, Berkeley, that I realized that I actually did want to do archaeology. Um, and it was really the faculty at Berkeley who, although didn't have experience with indigenous archaeology or working with tribal archaeology or archaeology on tribal homelands, they provided me with the opportunity to do work that was supportive of my own community and supportive of the work that I wanted to do with, by, and for Indigenous communities. And so that's where I learned about a little bit more about archaeology. That one story, you know, that one situation when I was 10 years old had a very profound impact on me and also instilled in me a sense of what it meant to be connected to the landscape and, and, why our landscape and the cultural landscape is so important to indigenous peoples. And so really that was my, my introduction into archaeology and that sort of had me hooked. <laughs> That's very interesting. You know, um, sort of these, these pathways and uh, what, what stuck out to me there, I mean, many things, but what stuck out to me about uh, sort of your trajectory into archaeology was when you were first learning about archaeology, it was uncomfortable and it was not perhaps what, what you were expecting or perhaps what you wanted it to be. So can you give me a little bit of a better sense of what changed your mind exactly? Was it the cultural anthropology, anthropological aspect? Was it history or was it the possibility of charting a new path? 
actually was a little of all of those things, to be honest. And and so when I first um, started in at university, one of my first experiences going to a, an archaeological conference was really what changed my mind about archaeology. And so I was very, I'm very fascinated by history and just the stories that we tell and that we perpetuate from one generation to the next about who we are and where we come from. You know, it was really the the storytelling aspect. My father was an amazing storyteller. And so I learned a lot of what it meant to hold our culture and to share our culture and to teach our culture from my father. Cultural anthropology and history were ways they provided me with the tools to be able to do that kind of work. Based on my own cultural education, though, I was able to add this sort of indigenized version to storytelling that not only sort of felt right for me, but that served my people. And so, you know, in the work that I started doing for, for Navajo Nation, for example, I started as a student archaeologist in my third year as an undergrad, and I was an, an archaeologist. And so that meant going out to tribal homelands and, you know, doing archaeological surveys, site identification, mapping, documentation. And part of what the Navajo Nation implemented was ethnographic interviews with the local community, uh, with traditional knowledge keepers. And so that is part of their archaeological process. And so when I would go out, it this form of archaeology was extremely different than what I was learning how to do in my classes. Hmm. And so I had to sort of come to a point where I had to really reconcile what does archaeology mean to me and and you know, is this something that I, I want to do in, in, as, in as far as what I was learning at the university versus what I was learning from my community, from other Navajo archaeologists um, and other archaeologists who had done work on, on Navajo tribal homelands for years. And so what I realized is that you can only get so much of the story, if you will, if you only see things through your own perspective. And so as an archaeologist, we are trained to have a perspective, if you will, right? We're, we're trained to identify artifacts and, and features in the ground and, and determine, you know, how and where people live based on these very sort of minute details in the landscape. Hmm. And so when I applied my cultural education to what I was doing, it revealed an entirely different story of our landscape. And it was that experience of working, you know, with this sort of ancient culture, but also hearing the stories of elders and, and traditional knowledge holders that provided me with a story of our past that I had never experienced in my education it really opened my eyes to how archaeology can be done in a way that supports the community, that supports their cultural knowledge, and really provides a way for them to engage with their past in, in a way that is appropriate for their own culture. And so that was eye-opening to me. And, and 
being able to learn from these knowledge holders and knowledge keepers and then learning to to see the land through a Navajo perspective was life-changing for me. It was those sort of those two things, that experience that really started pulling me to archaeology. And then I started, you know, doing more and more field work. And that field work was exactly like my childhood. And so it was it was the the good times that I remember of walking on the landscape, of being told these stories from my father and you know from from his relatives. And so it was the same experience. And I learned so much about who I was as a as a as a Navajo woman, um, but also what it meant to be Navajo in the 21st century. You know, when I when I started thinking about grad school, I I honestly wanted to find a, a program that would accept what I wanted to do. And, and I knew very early on that my perspective and my understanding of Navajo archaeology was very sort of controversial mm-hmm. and I was excluded from a lot of these traditional archaeological um, spaces. And, and so it was really interesting to me that as a Navajo person, I was relating these histories, these stories that I was told, and, and then being dismissed as not being a real archaeologist. And so, you know, I had to, I knew that I needed to find a space where they would accept what I was doing and they would support what I was doing as well. Because, you know, there's a difference between just doing something and, and doing that on your own. But when you have the support, you have the resources, then it really, you know, it, it pushes that that community-centeredness. It, it pushes success for all, all involved. Mm. And so I was really amazed with the support that I received when I visited Berkeley. And, you know, I was describing the research approaches that I wanted to utilize and and the experience that I had working with my community. And to my surprise, all of the faculty that I met during that initial visit to Berkeley were so excited. They were so welcoming and, and really excited for what I wanted to do because they also, I think, realized that at that time, archaeology was changing. And, and really, this was sort of the beginning of that push of the of that, you know, some of the changes that needed to happen. And so really, it was, you know, just these these sort of that trifecta of being open and, and supportive of the research that I wanted to do with fine for indigenous communities, the support that I received to attend Berkeley but also the welcome that I received and, and the training and the mentorship that I received. And that was something that was rare for me because in other spaces I had been excluded because of my, my approaches and, and my perspectives. And so to come into a space that really allowed me to grow and, and to explore was life-changing for me. And so I began to really grow into what it meant to be an indigenous archaeologist. And um, really, you know, that was the beginning, sort of beginning of of my career and sort of trailblazing in this area and and pushing the boundaries of archaeology and and what we know of our discipline. That's that's wonderful. Uh, I I wonder, you know, your work is 
is so interesting because it is community focused and it is inherently Diné. And it's, you know, you and I have had a conversation in the past where you're doing things that are explicitly not pan Indian, but are, are focused and are local and are, are meaningful to, to a community. And, you know, public historians have tried to do, try to do similar things to be responsive to communities and to think about ways that these institutions or public historians as scholars, as researchers can serve the, the community in, in whatever whatever capacity and whatever form that takes. So can you talk a little bit more about how how exactly your work does that? Right. You know, <laughs> I, I and I've been sort of using that um, indigenous archaeology, right? And there's this sort of connotation that it is this kind of pan experience. And in a way it is. And and I think though there's a little bit of a difference when that when I speak about indigenous archaeology because it is because it is very localized. I think that's part of this sort of critical aspect of, of indigenous archaeology is really sort of unpacking those power relations um, that have existed between archaeologists or scholars in general and indigenous peoples. And also, you know, the fact that everything about us as indigenous peoples was created by anthropologists or archaeologists without us. And so everything that we know about our identity, our history as Indigenous peoples, is, is from the perspective of non-Indigenous peoples. And it's, it's really a strange thing to me that it's those sort of ideas and, and those sort of categorizations that have created what it what we know in, in our sort of mainstream society of what it means to be native or indigenous. You know, on the other side of things though, in, in looking at what indigenous archaeology is, part of it is accepting that it is a localized, it is a very specific kind of approach that has to be created with each community. And so there's definitely this sort of these these concepts or domains, if you will, that are embedded within indigenous archaeology, right? These power relations, those historical relations, some of these systemic issues. But again, we have to pull that to a local space. And so for me, as a Diné woman, as a Diné son, it was important for me to create a way for our people, our Diné people, to learn about, to investigate, and to really tell their own stories of their past. And that was, you know, it's such a powerful thing to be able to create and to define and, and allowing that process to happen through the actions of a community, right, Mm -hmm. is, is so powerful in and of itself. It's really actually, it goes along with what our, our philosophies are as Navajo people and our teachings. And so one of the things that we're taught is that when all of us speak Navajo the same way, when all of us pray the same way and, and perform ceremonies the same way, that's the end of us as Navajo people. Because we are all individuals. All of us are are unique and that's built into our philosophies and, and how we're taught about, you know, person that personhood, mm. you know, when, when we 
try to create these 10 identities or this one approach, it's not going to work, right? It, it's, it's antithetical to who we are. And so part of the process of working with indigenous communities is figuring that out. And it's working with the communities to see what matters to them, what's important to them, and what they want from, from this process. And for me, that's where it all starts. And so each Navajo community is different. There's not one community that is the same as any other. This speaks to who we are in our teachings is that we are all different and that's okay. There's a space made for that. That's accepted. But it also sort of creates these this sort of difficulty in trying to do this work with the nation, right? Navajo Nation, as opposed to these various communities. And so part of that work as, a, as an indigenous archaeologist is being able to pivot between these different groups and, and these different sort of asks. And it's not easy at all. And, and in fact, I think it's a little bit more challenging than your sort of mainstream kind of traditional quote unquote archaeology mm. because you're you're having to do the work of learning about these communities, of talking to these different people and compiling that information. And so that's what I mean when you have to honor our past and honor our present and honor our future. And so for every community that's different. Every one of these communities has different histories and, and different people and different ideologies, and that all has to be honored. And and so maybe, you know, that's one of the reasons why there is a sort of reaction to Indigenous archaeology is that all of that work has to be done before you even get into, you know, some of the work of archaeology. Mm. And so when you think about this, right, and, and think about it from a critical sort of perspective, you're opening up archaeology in a way that has never been um, completed before. And so we have a very multidimensional perspective of a past that at one point was very sort of one-dimensional, right? It was flat, it was linear, and it was told from a very sort of sterile perspective. Mm. Whereas when you bring in these different communities and you listen to these different groups, these different stakeholders, if you will, each of these people have different stories to contribute. That's something that needs to be recognized is that your positionality influences your story. And so there has to be a space made for all of these different stories. And that I think is one of the strengths of indigenous archaeology is that it really does have the capacity to incorporate all of these different stories, but it also is responsive to the needs of the community. Mm. And so, again, each of these communities have different needs and, and concerns. It's a challenge to work within tribal nations because there's this, again, this sort of misconception that they are all the same. So we say Navajo Nation and that sort of represents this large group of Navajo people. But within that, we have 128 different like local governments, you know. And so there's all of this sort of difference in there that has to be accounted for. But you have to be mindful in how you do that. You know, when you're 
thinking about all of these various publics, again, you have to be very intentional. You have to be very inclusive. And it's a lot of work to juggle all of these different concerns and all of these different stories. But when you get to that point where you are able to do that and and these communities are creating their own stories, they're, they're creating their own histories, it's such an amazing thing to witness the just the the joy and the delight, I guess, in, in having created a story, their shared story, and, and them having the control of being able to share that story when and how they want. That is is good medicine. You know, it's it's something that is part of what I look for when I do work is, is making sure that communities, they feel good about what they've created. And it's something that again, is going to be used in perpetuity from one generation to the next. And so you're actively creating features with communities and, and that in and of itself is, is so powerful. It's just amazing to do that kind of work. Museums today are very interested in in that idea in forming real lasting meaningful beneficial relationships with with indigenous communities but you know as 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 you mentioned before there's a long history of precisely the opposite particularly when it comes to uh, archaeology anthropology and the way that historians have also sort of talked about these kinds of histories so for museum practitioners today can you give them a little advice in terms of what challenges have you encountered and actually in having that initial conversation, but then also that really important goal of sustaining those relationships? You know, that is a really, a really great question, I think. And in the work that I do here as a as faculty, that's one of the sort of most common questions that I'm asked is how how do I even begin to do this work? Where do I start? Who do I start with? And, and you know, how, how? And so for me, you know, I, I, I think I have a bit of an advantage, of course, because I am a, a tribal member. But on the other hand, I was not raised within a Diné household, right? I was raised in a Nespers, a Nimipu household. And so when I came to Arizona from Idaho, one of the first things that I did is learn the language and, and I'm still learning. I'm still in process. I don't ever think I will be finished, but it was one of the things that was important and really critical for me to understand what it meant to be a Navajo person. You know, what I, what I've learned in, in my time on a nation is that our language is everything. Our, our language is is created from our landscape. Our identity comes from the landscape. And so when we do this work, we have to honor our language. And and so that was one of the first things I had to learn was the language and the protocols. How do I engage with Navajo people in a way that is respectful, in a way that is generative, but also that that is transformational? You know, one of the things, again, that, that I, I really threw myself into was that learning about Navajo culture, Navajo history, 
and, and the current sort of situation, it was a lot of work to do that. But it was also, it helped me understand a lot about my own people, about my family, but it also informed me as to some of the long standing systemic issues that are impacting the success and, and the survival of the Navajo people. And it was eye opening to learn about these histories of gas and oil extraction and, and the very fact that our Navajo Nation Council was started to sign a lease for extraction of uh, minerals. And so, you know, some of those things are things that play a major role in how our communities developed and in how they stand and how they work with one another. That would be one of my recommendations is learn that history, learn what the community that you wanted to work with, that you want to work with, learn what they have gone through, learn their experiences. More importantly, learn about those settler colonial histories because there is a long history of displacement of indigenous peoples from their homelands. And that impacts how we understand these, you know, historical relationships, how we understand the landscape, right? It has an impact. You need to to take those steps to understand from an indigenous perspective, those histories. And, And really, I think that speaks to decolonizing methodologies and learning how your presence has impacted indigenous survival. And I think that's something that, you know, when we say land acknowledgements, that's sort of the first step in learning those histories. And so I encourage anybody who wants to work with an indigenous community to do that work. And it's, it's overwhelming. It is depressing in a lot of ways, but it's also amazing to see the resiliency and the spirit of indigenous peoples to survive all of the things that they did in in the face of development and progress of our, you know, settler government and, and, and the fact that they are still here today, they are still speaking their language, they are still engaging in relationships with, with the land. And, and, you know, that is something that we have, as archaeologists, we have to understand as well, because when we, the simple act of excavation, right, of actually digging in the ground is seen as disrespectful to many indigenous peoples. And so how do we begin to reconcile some of those things if we have no idea where each other is coming from? Indigenous peoples know what archaeology is. They know history. They know anthropology. They know these things because they have been subjected to these processes since since our fields have started in the United States, right? And so, you know, for archaeology, that's over 200 years that our people have met and, and have been subjected to research by anthropologists and archaeologists. Mm-hmm. And so our people are fully aware of these processes, but there's no reciprocity from researchers to learn about our histories, to learn about our cultures are are how we hold the landscape, how we interact with the landscape. And so in in an effort to decolonize, that's one of the first things that really needs to happen is that deep dive into 
the people and the place that you want to study. And, and I would encourage you all to look at the places that you currently live and, and the lens that you currently occupy to see those histories, because no matter where you are in, in the United States, you are on indigenous land and there are histories there, histories of displacement, histories of success and, and survivance, but they are all histories and times that are important to Indigenous peoples that need to be considered when you're thinking about and theorizing their histories and their cultures. And so definitely those are, are I think, the, the starting places that I would suggest for people who are interested in doing community work. Scholars who who have a certain research method, it is itself a colonial enterprise. Museums are precisely the same because the museums are the beneficiaries of those colonial enterprises and extraction and salvage ethnography and this very, very long history where the stuff in these physical places comes from precisely that interaction. So have you encountered any public projects, any museum exhibitions, anything that struck you as being really genuinely decolonized and what was it about that thing, if if there is one? You know, actually, there there are a few different kind of examples that I can think of. But in, in looking here locally in Flagstaff, Arizona, the Museum of Northern Arizona has a very long legacy here in working, um, investigating, researching indigenous peoples here on the Colorado Plateau. They, like many other museums, I think, have gone through a very sort of reflexive process of, of who they are, um, where they are, and, and what they want to do. And luckily, I think our, our MNA, Museum of Northern Arizona, has a long history of supporting Indigenous artists and, and Indigenous peoples. And so one of the things that they did... Oh my gosh, I don't even know when it started. Probably though, within the last 15 years, actually, they made a very conscious effort to change the way that they interacted with Indigenous peoples and the way that they told their stories. In the early days of, you know, MA, even 20 years ago, you could go over there and all of the exhibits told the story of Indigenous peoples of, um, as disappearing. Um, as as sort of relics of the past in black and white imagery, mm. um, historic photographs, right? So there was this sort of sense that we are the ever disappearing Indian that was very um, present in, in a lot of those exhibits. And so with the, the new director and a change in relationships with a lot of the local groups, they began to retell the story of indigenous peoples on the Colorado Plateau. And they went out and they met with elected leaders, with their traditional cultural knowledge keepers, with youth, with all kinds of, of you know, contemporary tribal members to learn about who they are, what's important to them, and what they wanted the museum to share about who they were. The result is this amazing exhibit at MNA on the peoples of the Colorado Plateau that combines contemporary photography, contemporary arts and crafts, jokes, photos of people, 
all of these really great examples of survivance and resiliency of indigenous peoples. And there are recordings of people saying greetings in their language of praying, of singing. And it's, it's a really a celebration of indigeneity on the Colorado plateau. And it's done in such a beautiful way it honors their language, it honors their histories, it honors who they are now, but it also honors their visions of the future. And so really incorporating this concept of indigenous futurisms. And that to me is, is, is I think what changes this exhibit amongst any of the other ones that I've seen is it allowed indigenous peoples to think about their history who they are now and where they want to go. Mm. And, and that in and of itself of, of having a future, even of, of being here now is, is a departure from a lot of the museum exhibits that I, I've seen of indigenous peoples. Mm. Um, again, because we're always sort of in this deficit kind of example of we're, we're constantly losing ourselves and so, you know, I can definitely talk a little bit more about that and um, colonization, right, and, and self-colonization. But as far as, as this museum exhibits and, and representing who we are, that exhibit, I think, comes the closest to really celebrating who we are and, and the fact that we've survived um, and we are are thriving. And so it's it's those kinds of exhibits that are so meaningful. And I think that empower us to to be able to tell our own stories and it changes this view of us in in as disappearing or as as you know losing who we are um which is something that we've been battling for a very long time it sounds a lot like this kind of work is perhaps activist it's socially and politically activist to what extent do you think the scholarly community who who is doing this work, but also, of course, the museum community, good public history is scholarly. So to what extent does this scholarly and, and museum public history community, what responsibility do they have to be activist in that regard? That, I think, is is one of the questions that as as scholars, I think a lot of us have maybe... Thought, I, I hope that a lot of us have really been very self-reflexive in, in thinking about that. You know, I think with this generational change and with what the, the sort of social changes that we've seen and the social issues that we're facing now as a, as a community, as a nation, that we have the response, the, the responsibility is upon us. Because we have the abilities, we have the capabilities to be able to tell these stories, but also we have the ability to center particular stories. And for a very long time, these sort of outsider, westernized stories of who we are as Indigenous peoples, those have been held as, as the gold standard. And again, they are filled with misinformation about who we are. And so there is a, a heavy responsibility, I think, on, on public facing scholars or these scholars who are creating these narratives for public consumption. Mm. 
it is upon them to, to tell these nuanced stories, to tell these enriched stories where we are braiding knowledges, you know, to borrow from Sonia Atale's work, where we're braiding these traditional knowledges, these stories with the, the scholarly stories and, and these approaches that are telling us or giving us information that we, we wouldn't have had otherwise. And so when we do that kind of work, when we engage in that kind of work, we are revealing a completely different kind of history than we are used to. I think we're only cheating ourselves if we do not engage in work that is maybe more along those sort of activist lines, because we are literally revealing these hidden spaces. That work is so critical and necessary because, you know, as, as these sort of marginalized peoples, we've never been able to tell our stories. We've never had that opportunity. And now, and again, it's this time that we're in, this space that we're in, there's a space that's been created for these stories to be centered. It is your responsibility. It's my responsibility to ensure that we are revealing these hidden histories. We're just, we're doing ourselves a disservice if we are only paying attention and telling those stories that make us look good or that speak to these happy endings, because we know from our own, you know, life experiences that that is not how life goes but it's in those challenges and in those sort of moments of difficulty that we as human beings learn who we are and we learn what we're capable of. But we also learn that our connection to one another is much deeper than the color of our skin or where we come from. And I think that's what's important about engaging in work at that level is really sort of unpacking and deconstructing these relationships or these sort of theories of how and, and who people are, we're limiting ourselves. And so when we begin to break down those structures and we create that space, we are enabling these amazingly nuanced and enriched histories to be revealed. And that only helps us, right? That only pulls us in a direction to understand that although we do have these sort of, you know, superficial kind of differences underneath, we are all what we say as Navajo five finger earth surface people. And so all of us are human beings, whether we agree with that or not, we are all the same. And, and, you know, that's as indigenous people, that's how we see ourselves. And each of us has our own, name for ourselves in our, in our language. But when you translate that, it means the people, all of us, again, it's a recognition that we are all humans and that we all have a shared history together, whether we like that or not. <laughs> and, and so it is our responsibility. I have high expectations for ourselves and, and for these coming generations, for them to do that work, to engage in that work and to make it normalized and, and to make it a part of our everyday sort of lived experience and our practice and, and what we teach as well. I think that's important, that legacy. That's, that's wonderful. Thank you. For people who want to know a little bit more about you, your work, uh, how can they find you on social media? 
You know, actually, I'm um, I'm very active on Twitter, and so you can find me at d o c m a r e k at doc merrick. Aura, thank you so much. It was an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast. Well, thank you, John. I thoroughly enjoyed our conversation, and I, I'm very appreciative of you offering me the space and the time. So, thank you. That's all for today. I'll see you next time.